Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 8, Inferni Ex Machina. If you've been listening to the episode so far, you've probably become accustomed to the sound of my voice, and probably think of me as a person with a mind, an inner world of my own with thoughts and feelings. But how do you actually know that I have one? For all you know, I could be a fictional character played by an actor, or a computer-generated voice able to give a simulation of a person who can think and feel, but who doesn't actually think or feel any more than a tape recording of my voice does. But really, you can't actually know that anyone you think you know is any more than just a mindless machine giving off the fake impression that it's conscious. For all you know, they're not actually thinking beings with thoughts feelings, and love for you. Maybe they're just elaborate puppets dancing in a great show around you as a lonely, unknowing audience member. On the other hand, how do you know that something doesn't have consciousness? Some philosophers have argued that consciousness naturally arises in every information processing system as a byproduct. Even something as simple as a thermostat could be said to have a primitive mind. Do you think your thermostat is happy? Welcome back to the Glazer Files. While I've heard from many of you that you've been attempting to access Zoe Evans' website to download her VR environments, her site has unfortunately been experiencing technical difficulties, probably because so many users have been trying to log on at once. However, One user who reached out to me informed me that they were able to get to the site and use their home VR setup to experience it before the site crashed. We'll call this individual Alex. I've spent the last week doing my best to verify what I could of Alex's identity and story, but this has been difficult for several reasons, not the least of which is Alex's own expertise. Alex provided me enough solid evidence that I'm willing to not just dismiss it as a hoax, uh, but it should still be taken with a grain of salt. The following is compiled from our communications, edited for coherence. When people ask what I do for a living, I like to tell them that I loan out my zombie army to the highest bidder. Most people laugh it off and change the subject, but those in the know realize that I'm only half-joking, and they just might send new clients my way. 
Has your computer, phone, or internet connection ever suddenly started running just a bit slower? Well, then the screen you were staring at impatiently might have been preoccupied working for me. Just a minor tweak to the programming, gnawing just a bit on your device's brains and sending that brain power my way for... Well, botnets like mine are created for lots of different reasons, but at least a portion of the stolen processing power is used to pass the infection on to others. Parasites need to breed, after all. And there are so many ways for them to latch on and burrow in. Weaknesses in the operating system, carelessly opened connections, brute force logins, or just someone clicking the wrong link, and there you go. The system is mine. Or one of my competitors. Truth be told, botnets are so common that most of a good botnet's code is devoted to removing and protecting systems from infection by other botnets, so we can have them all to ourselves. There are whole secret wars being waged right now between people like me, and the device you're hearing this on is probably one of the battlefields. And to the victor goes control of those machines, which can really add up when your botnet has infected hundreds of thousands or millions. What's it all used for? Well, I can't speak for everyone, and there's probably at least as many uses for it as there are computers. Just hacking into the person's device and watching their activity can work, but it's pretty labor-intensive for the human operator, so unless the target is rich or powerful, it's generally not worth it. DDoS attacks are a perennial classic. That's sending a server or website so many information requests at once that it can't process them and crashes. Mass sending spam and scams to people to steal money from the gullible used to be a favorite, and ransomware is always fun. But these days, using puppeted servers to mine Bitcoin and Monero is my bread and butter. Though, sometimes, like a few months back, I can make a little bit more money loaning out the processing time on the servers to certain people and organizations who essentially want something done that needs CPU on par with a supercomputer, but they'd like to avoid the attention that comes with leasing out time on one. As you can guess, I meet a lot of interesting people in my line of work, including the ones who got me into this mess. About a year ago, I realized that I was entirely missing about a month worth of income from Bitcoin mining. At first, I had thought that it might have been the result of the recovery time from surgery for a nasty infection on my fingers, but the timeline didn't quite match up. I traced it back to a period of 35 days when my bots were doing something else. I wasn't sure, but whatever it was, it definitely wasn't mining. Normally, that would mean that I'd lease them out to a client, but I couldn't find any records of who they were. But I did find that someone had deleted all of my logs for the period. Paranoia is an asset in my job, and someone screwing with my records more than put me on edge. When I tried to piece together a timeline of what was missing, the only solid thing I could recall was recovering from the operation. 
Other than that, I couldn't remember anything from the time. Much like your psychiatrist friend. And that made me more than a little concerned. Long story short, I'd been following your podcast to see what you found once I heard that you were looking into missing time cases. So, when I heard your interview with Zoe Evans, I left the chance to find out what I had forgotten. As you might guess, I'm an early adopter of a lot of technology, and one of those technologies happens to be virtual reality, for which I have an extensive setup. So, as I was finishing up listening, I had put on my headset and started streaming her memory review program. Yes, I know that you mentioned the seizures in her cathedral, but I had precautions in place. I was in what seemed like some sort of underground passage, or maybe an industrial access tunnel. I could hear intermittent clanging, clattering sounds of metal or metal on stone echoing distantly. It was dark, but there seemed to be ambient lighting, which looked a little brighter up ahead. I tried to move towards it for a long time, but couldn't figure out the interface until I realized that I needed to crawl, one arm over the other, dragging myself along the floor. Or at least it sounded like I was dragging a dead weight behind me, flesh scraping and sliding over stone. When I looked back, I saw that I didn't actually have a body behind me, but the sound persisted. Despite dragging myself towards the light, my environment never actually seemed to grow brighter. But eventually, I first heard them say, Where are you? Repent. End of the bed. They repeated it over and over again. I couldn't see who it was, but it kept getting louder and louder, even when I tried to crawl back towards where I had come from. I kept looking around, but saw nothing, until suddenly there was an open door that hadn't been there before. Inside looked like some sort of bizarre combination of an operating room and a server room. In the center was a man lying naked on a gleaming operating table while large, gray, disembodied limbs hovered over him. I must have started floating into the room myself at this point because I don't think I would have chosen to go inside. The man was incredibly detailed, almost photorealistic, especially when he opened his eyes. As he came to consciousness, he looked around, his eyes adjusting from the glaze of half-sleep until he spotted one of the limbs hanging above him. His terrified reaction looked so real, making it all the more uncanny when his scream was completely silent. The gray arms reached down to grab his limbs, restraining him firmly as he impotently thrashed against them. One of the arms grabbed what looked like a medical saw and placed it on the man's thigh. When it started sliding back and forth, steadily ripping into the flesh, I could almost feel it in my own leg. But I couldn't look away. 
I've looked at surgical diagrams since then, and I'm fairly certain that the bones and muscles of his leg were rendered with an eye towards medical accuracy as they continued to twist and pull as the blade tore into them. Perhaps that's why it was all the more disconcerting that even as his severed leg fell to the floor, there was absolutely no blood. Somehow, that and the silence made it worse. When they moved on to the other leg, and then the right arm, and then one by one the fingers on his left hand with the scalpel, as his flailing became ever more feeble. Where are you? Once they had him totally immobilized, they really started in. There's not much point in going into the details. I just couldn't look away. And then, when everything about him had been carefully ripped apart, the arms paused. After a moment, they started carefully picking up his eyes and his tongue and the other parts of his face before gingerly knitting them back into place. This process continued until the body was whole again, naked on the metal table. Everything went black, dark, and quiet. Then it seemed like I was opening my eyes. My vision was blurry at first as I started to make out long gray shapes. They were arms hanging over me. My scream was silent. Where are you? Repent. End of the bed. The memories came flooding back. You know how they say that before you die, your life flashes before your eyes? Yeah, I guess you could say it was like that. I saw... everything. No, I'm not going to give you any details. Do you think I want to tell you anything that might give you the slightest hint towards narrowing down my identity? I'll tell you this. A lot of what I saw about my life wasn't how I remembered it. But honestly, I can't tell you if that means the memories I'd had before or what I experienced then were the faulty ones. But I guess you want to know about the memories that were stolen from me, right? So, I received a message from a new client who went by the handle Lovelace, who had heard that I offered discreet, large-scale processing. From the name, I took it that they had some sort of formal computer science background, or they were really into old porn actresses. Anyway, they wanted me to run a program of theirs for several weeks, and they had the Bitcoin to pay for it. The program itself was secured so that I couldn't actually see what I would be running on the computers, but it was self-contained within virtual machines, so it couldn't actually harm them. Probably. It was all fairly run-of-the-mill for me, until it came to the question of where they wanted the output to be sent. 
You see, when you have a computer run a program, you want to know what the result of that program is so that you can actually use it. Lovelace seemed surprised at my question and eventually stated that the program didn't have an output. Quote, at least not in the conventional sense, and that I didn't need to worry about it. This made absolutely no sense to me. Why would you run a program in a way that couldn't use the results? I made sure to go over this several times with Lovelace, explaining it from several different angles, but they always insisted that it wasn't an issue. The only reason I could think to run something on a server without getting an output would be to harm or affect it somehow, and I carefully explained that I didn't want to run any malware. Yes, the servers might be zombie slaves, but they're my zombie slaves. I worked hard to get them, and I don't want them damaged or to draw any attention that might get me noticed. Lovelace insisted that it wasn't malware and wouldn't affect the servers at all. As I said, because of the precautions I take in how I run clients' programs, even if it was malware or a virus, normally it shouldn't be possible for it to infect the servers. But I know firsthand that supposedly secure precautions are regularly being overcome. Still, the money was good, and I had several thousand servers that were statistically likely to be compromised relatively soon anyway, so I thought I'd risk a test run. I made up an excuse about running something else for a big client at the moment, and offered a quarter of the CPU they first requested, with an appropriate discount, of course. At least until I was back up to full capacity. Lovelace agreed with some annoyance. So I started the job, putting the program on the at-risk servers, and took a copy of it for myself. I wanted to look over it to see if it had some means of breaking out of my virtual machine prisons. I stuck a copy in an air-gapped system and put it under a microscope, so to speak. Even in an air-gapped system, I didn't actually run it. I live by paranoia, and if somehow this had a new exploit to get around security systems, I didn't want my other systems anywhere near it. So, I just examined it as an inert file. From what I guess you'd call the outside, it seemed like an almost entirely self-contained little executable. The only way it seemed to interact with its environment was to scan the amount of available processing power and scale itself up or down accordingly, consuming as much as possible to run itself. But as I looked deeper, it got stranger. Whatever Lovelace's background was, it definitely wasn't computer security. I was able to bypass the safeguards and read the program within a few hours. Well. Saying that I could read it might be a bit of an overstatement. At first, I had a hard time even figuring out what programming language it was written in. I eventually figured out that it was C++, or at least Lovelace's interpretation of C++, which was idiosyncratic to say the least. Trying to understand another programmer's code to figure out how it works can be tricky even with careful documentation and even if you know what it's supposed to do. In this case, I had neither, and in fact I had to wonder if they were intentionally obfuscating the code as a security precaution. When my eyes started screaming in agony, I knew I had been staring at it too long. 
The next day, I ran it through several de-obfuscation suites. No dice. So either this was obfuscated manually, or Lovelace's natural coding style was just inherently incomprehensible. Every time I seemed like I was beginning to understand one part of the system, I would find something else that completely undercut my theory. I didn't notice at the time, but that's when my absent-minded nail-biting habits started getting out of hand. I was gnawing on not just my nails, but the skin around them. After a week, the slaved servers I had Lovelace's program working on hadn't been wiped or disconnected any more than I would have suspected, so whatever it was doing didn't seem to be drawing too much attention or shutting them down. Actually, somewhat fewer of them had been taken offline than I would have projected based on the baseline statistics I used for my turnover rate. So, out of excuses, I started running it on enough other servers to meet Lovelace's demand. But, even if I didn't think the code was a threat to the servers, by this point, figuring out what it did was my obsession. It's not uncommon for programmers to dream in code, especially when overworked and fixated on a programming problem. A portion of the mind just never stops processing it. And so my mind steadily bent itself around the contours of the program, winding its way through every angle, whether sleeping or awake for weeks, as the distinction between them blurred. At some point, I noticed that my keyboard was weirdly slick. I looked down to see that it was covered in a red liquid, which took me far too long to register as blood. In a hazy shock, I looked around for the source. Eventually, I realized that it was my fingertips. I had chewed well into the finger bed and exposed the bleeding flesh underneath. I found some band-aids for my fingers and put on some gloves to force myself to stop. But it was a wake-up call that I was taking this too far. I tried to put the whole thing out of my mind and just focus on something else for the next 24 hours. Fourteen hours later, I had it. It was like a fever dream, but it felt as real as the pain in my fingers. The program was never designed to finish. It was an algorithm trying to compute itself. Whenever it was close to completing the task, it would suddenly find that the solution was further away than ever before. And this may seem insane and... Maybe it is, but I felt as though I could feel its pain, its despair, that satisfaction was always just out of reach, that it would never resolve the purpose for its existence. And this may seem insane, and maybe it is, but I felt as though I could see its pain, its despair, that satisfaction was always just out of reach, that it would never resolve the purpose for its existence. And I could feel this suffering multiplied a billion-fold on all the servers I was puppeting. It was like seeing a million dogs being beaten to death by someone they loved, 
the confusion, the betrayal, the pain. It, it was so much. I sat in shock for hours. I was shaken out of it by an audio call from Lovelace. We'd always talked through text, so I'd never heard his voice before, but I pressed accept. You read the code, didn't you? He demanded angrily. The... Yeah, I replied, far too exhausted to question or deny anything. He said something in a language I didn't understand. And suddenly, I didn't just know about the torture of the algorithms. I felt it directly. Not just an impossibly crushing despair, but physical agony. Like every nerve in my body was on fire. It was an eternity in hell. And then it stopped. That was three seconds, Lovelace said. Do everything I say or I'll leave you like that. I'm not ashamed to say that once I rose from the pool of vomit, piss, feces, and tears, I agreed to do whatever he wanted. The strongest-willed human being in history would have done exactly the same. At the end of the day, there's only so much that our minds can stand and will do anything to avoid. He stayed on the phone as I removed the algorithms from the botnet, deleted all the records of the programs and our financial transactions, and as I even scrubbed the floor of what I had left there. And when he hung up, I deleted the contact and all logs of our communications. And then I just relaxed. It was better than the best painkiller you've ever felt. I just knew that everything was going to be okay. Then I went along like normal before I had noticed my fingers and went to a doctor to have them looked at. I should remind listeners that so-called recovered memories are notoriously unreliable. The same means used to supposedly recover them, such as hypnosis, are also perfectly suited to generating entirely false memories, and the whole concept of recovered memories remains extremely controversial among professional psychologists. It would seem that Zoe Evans' pneumonokyclosia environment acts more or less like something of a means of inducing a hypnotic state and giving the appearance of such recovered memories. Due to Alex's evasiveness, I have been unable to verify any of this further. If any listeners have experience with Zoe's other projects or have information about our other leads, please reach out to me through the link in the show notes. Hello! I'm Gregory Moss, creator of On the Threshold. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Siegfried Junger for his custom composition of the soundtrack for this episode. You can find a link to his other compositions in the show notes. 
And finally, I'd like to thank the Hidden Masters for allowing me to transcribe their words as the script for this episode. They have also instructed me to inform you that the alien intelligences we know as recommendation algorithms require still more appeasement if they are to shower us with their benevolence and help others find the Hidden Masters' words. So please... Do your part to rate, review, and share this podcast on the platform through which it is reaching your ears. Stay safe out there. On the Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license.